week here of a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm in our verses, our chapter 11 through uh, chapter 12, verse 8. And this ends the, the speech of the preacher. Remember, there's an editor um, who's gathered together all the sayings of the preacher, and uh, he has a little conclusion at the end. But um, if I had a longer series, I'd preach that as well. It is as much the word of God as what is before. But I'm going to end with the words of the preacher. And so here are God's word to us this morning from Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion of seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let, not your, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also the creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the window are dimmed and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and the one who rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low they are afraid also of what is high and the tares are in the way the alm tree, almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The word of the Lord. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Lord. The reality of death takes and steals everything from us. As we reflect on the meaning of death in the conclusion of this book, we also look ahead 
to the death of Jesus and its meaning. Lord, meet us this morning, we pray in your word. Shake us, comfort us, make us prisoners of hope. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the, light, um, the name of the sermon today um, is different from the one in the bulletin. It's not the joyful death, although that still, that still fits. Uh, the name of the sermon is Life is Beautiful. That's the name of the sermon. Life is Beautiful. One of my guiding principles as a pastor is to prepare you for death. Each of us will die someday, and we don't know when, and we don't know where, and we don't know how. There is nothing more natural, nothing more universal than death, and yet there's nothing that's more difficult for us to integrate into our everyday existence than the reality of death. We live consciously and unconsciously in the denial of death. We avoid reflecting on death except when it is forced and thrust upon us. But what if the experience of joy depends on the reality of death? What if the only way to live life fully would, is to surrender to death completely? This, I think, is the perspective of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He confronts us again and again with the reality of death. He will not let us turn our gaze away from us. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Death turns everything into hevel. Smoke. Mist. Vanity. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is a complex portrait of human existence painted on the dark canvas of death. The teacher imagines death as the backdrop to life. And not surprisingly, his very last words, his last recorded words in the book, are a long poem on death. It is a poem of painful yearning and terrifying beauty. And I want to read it to you again. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of evil come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and the one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and the tares are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The teacher is a poet of death. He imagines with finely tuned images how all that is precious and alive eventually is overcome. All things come to a grinding halt. All desire is extinguished. The storefronts are boarded up. The grasshopper can no longer hop. The silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. Like a chain holding up a giant chandelier, death comes along and snaps one of the links and the chandelier shatters to the ground. And the still living feel the shards of our broken life cutting into the bottom of their feet. The teacher's poem is an eloquent and beautiful portrait of death. But it is not death that the teacher finds beautiful. It is rather life set against the backdrop of death that is beautiful. Life alone is beautiful. And death makes poets of us all. We don't see how truly precious life is until we lose it or it is absent. We don't know how truly joyful life can be until we face how sorrowful death is. Remember the teacher's secret to a joyful life. This whole book is a book about joy. The teacher's secret to a joyful life is that abiding joy comes when we learn to embrace our limits as creatures. When we give up our godlike ambitions to be, to gain control, to gain mastery and profit and domination over life, when we seek trying to extract from this life that which cannot ever be given. When we learn to be creatures, that's when we learn and can be receive the joy of life. Death is the ultimate limit to our creatureliness. Death is the exclamation point of the short sentence of our life. And so to conclude with death, in this book might seem rather grim, but it's really the only way to end the book to ensure that we understand the middle of the book. And the middle is life. Life, life, of course, which is filled with much sorrow and hardship and loss, but life that is nevertheless beautiful and joyful. Death focuses life upon what is beautiful. Death can teach us what it means to be joyful. That's why life must be lived backwards. But how do we do this? How do we live life backwards? from the point of our death. If death inevitably is that which takes everything from us, how should we live joyfully now? For the teacher, it begins, I think, by living with risky generosity and open-heartedness towards the world. Look at um, chapter 11, the very beginning. Cast your bread upon the waters, 
for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now what does it mean when he says, cast your bread upon the waters? This is a bit of a strange expression. Bread, of course, represents the goods of our life. It represents the things, the gifts that we've been given, the things that we've earned, the things that are precious to us. And water represents what is unpredictable about life, what is unforeseen. To cast one's bread upon the water is a risky venture. It is to release your goods, if you will, that which is precious to you, to the unpredictability of life. It is to give of yourself without knowing exactly how it will return back to you as profit. It is to do good without a clear sense of how it will benefit you. Uh, the bumper sticker that you've probably seen many places, you know, do random acts or commit random acts of kindness, right? That's, that's a little bit of what the preacher is talking about here. The idea is don't be so calculating with your life. Don't be so calculating. Do good. Be kind. So generously. Give of yourself. Stop worrying so much about how it's going to come back to you and benefit you. Don't live miserly. Give yourself away. But not just give yourself away. Diversify yourself. You don't know what will work and won't work. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen upon the earth. Life is too unpredictable and it is too short to wait for the perfect opportunity to give of yourself. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. You can no more predict life than you can predict the weather. And if you wait around looking for just the right opportunity, watching the clouds, it will never come, and you might never live. In the morning, Sow your seed, and in the evening without, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I think what the teacher is warning us against here is what I'll call defensive living. Defensive living. Defensive living is a very natural instinct of, of our lives. Uh, it's a natural instinct of a world that is filled with suffering and death. We want to protect ourselves, right? We want to protect ourselves from harm. So we're afraid of failing. So we shy away from pursuing a challenging career, right? Or we don't want to suffer heartbreak. So we don't give ourselves in love. We don't want to be heard saying the wrong saying, thing, so we stay silent. We don't want to be rejected, so we never ask. We don't want our kids to get hurt, so we engineer harm and failure out of their lives. We live with hesitation. We don't take risks. We're over-calculating with our time. 
We're stingy in our relationships. We're risk averse to losing our resources. And so we limit our lives to safe people and safe spaces. But this is living defensively. And living defensively is a denial of death. Living defensively is a denial of death. Death means you're going to lose it all anyways. So what are you trying to hold on to? That's what the teacher is saying. You're going to lose it all in the end. So why are you holding so tightly to it now? Do you think that you can actually protect yourself and preserve yourself from what is to come? The irony of living defensively and the irony of the denial of death is actually that it lets death claim us before our time. We become like the walking dead. Defensive living lets death have more say and control because of fear than life itself. But the risks are real. The preacher is not saying, uh, your fears of loss and harm are overblown. He's not saying that at all. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. The days of darkness in our short lives will be many. You can count on that. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Now, this may not sound very Christian, what the preacher says here. You're going to die, so just enjoy life while you can. Is this, uh, again, the problem of hedonism? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and dawn. For, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The teacher is telling the young person to embrace life now while they still have it, to live life fully, live joyfully, experience life, its beauties, follow the passions of your heart. Don't live defensively. Don't hold back. As I read this, I was remember, remember the words on the locker room wall in the TV show Friday Night Lights. Remember what it says? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. That's what the preacher, in a way, is saying. And it sounds a little bit like a commencement address, right? <laughs> But then you read on, and it says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. There's the pious corrective, right, that we're hoping for. <laughs> Have fun, but just not too much fun. Remember that God will bring you into judgment for your lascivious living. But what is exactly the judgment that the teacher might, has in mind here? Is the teacher worried that we're going to confuse living fully with living immorally? I don't think so. I think the better reading here is the one that understands that judgment relates to how God will hold us accountable for how we have used our life or wasted our life, how we have enjoyed and found joy in the things he has given and how we have not. 
Someday we will have to give an account of the life that the Lord has given us. We'll have to give an account of whether we took responsibility for using those gifts and enjoying them. That's what I think that the teacher has in mind here. And this is precisely what Jesus has in mind in the parable of the ten minas, or the parable of the talents in the Gospel of Matthew. We're not used to thinking about judgment in these categories, but it's quite prominent in the teaching of Jesus. Um, I just want to remind you of that story and comment for a minute. A mina is a measure of, of money. It's measured in weight. Um, and, the, and the parable is about a nobleman who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom. And he leaves 10 of his servants in charge and he gives them 10 minas. And he wants them to use them in business and to make money with. And so when he returns from his journey after having received this kingdom, he calls them all together and asks them to give him an account of what did you do with the money? What kind of business were you engaged in? So the first one comes and says, I took one mina and I made 10 more with it. And the next one comes and says, I, I took their mina and I made another five with it. And then one comes and says, here's your mina. He gave him back the original one, unharmed and unused. And the nobleman says, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. The servant lived defensively, you could say. Jesus wants us to know that we are accountable. We are accountable for the gifts that he has given us, our very life and existence. They are things that he has entrusted to us. And he does not want us to squander our life, even out of fear of loss. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to make risky investments with your life? Are you willing to cast your bread upon the water? There's a close relationship in the mind of the teacher, I think, also in Jesus' teaching, between joy and risk. In the parable of the talent, which is uh, comparable to the, the minas, this link is a little more explicit. In that story, when the master returns to his servants, and he calls them account for the talents that he has given them. He goes down the line, and no matter how big or small um, those who invested, uh, Jesus says the same thing. He says, Master, and the Master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your Master. Enter the joy of your Master. What this parable teaches us is that the greatest joys in life come to us when we take responsibility as stewards for what God has given us and are willing to take meaningful risk with our lives. Joy is connected to responsibility and risk. Not reckless risk, not selfish risk, but the kind of risk that you have to take if you're going to love greatly the kind of risk that you're going to have to take if you're going to pursue what is beautiful, 
the kind of risk that you'll have to take if you're going to live for something that is bigger than yourself. This is what Jesus calls us to. Joy is the byproduct of responsibility and risk. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The line between joy and death is fragile. But the most intense joys of life are usually experienced in the closest proximity to death. A moving uh, illustration of this um, is found in the book When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanathi. The book is a memoir that Kalanathi wrote when he was 37 years old after he was diagnosed with um, stage four metastatic lung cancer. He wrote the book primarily for his daughter, who was in utero, and he knew that he would die shortly after she was born and that she would have no memory of him. So he writes this book in part for her. And Kalanathi was a a really remarkable guy, Um, very accomplished. He was a neurosurgeon who trained at Yale, and he did his residency at Stanford and then received a prestigious post at Stanford University Medical College. He was already quite accomplished as a researcher and a brain surgeon, and he was, a, he was already a really gifted writer. He was married and had a child on the way. By all accounts, he was a very healthy person. He never smoked. But he contracted this rare form of lung cancer that was already too far along before they could do anything about it. So he would die within the year. His life seemed to just be beginning but suddenly it's ripped away. And at the very end of his memoir, he he says, everyone succumbs to finitude. Most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned. Either way, they belong to the past. The future, instead of the latter toward the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all the vanities, the preacher of Ecclesiastes described holds so little status or interest. A chasing after the wind, indeed. This is the perspective on life at the end, right before one's death. And he, but, he observes, but he observes the deep joy that he came to experience at the very end of his life, a joy that outweighed all other joys that he had experienced up to that point. And it was related to his daughter. He had a brief overlap of his life and her life. And what he says is quite beautiful, and I would read it to you, but I know if I tried to read it to you, I'd probably start crying, so I don't want to do that. Nobody likes a weepy preacher. So you'll have to read it on your own. But he describes a joy on his deathbed that comes from the brief encounter with his daughter. And there's a way that the reality of death focused that and made it more precious as he saw life passing in his own death. Friends, looking at death face to face concentrates the heart on what is truly precious and beautiful in our life. 
Again, the line between death and joy is a fragile one. The only way to live life fully and joyfully is to surrender completely to the reality of death. Palm Sunday also walks a fragile line between joy and death. Overall, Palm Sunday is in the mood of joyous celebration. This is what we find in the account of Luke. And as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Joy, praise, jubilation. But in the background, we know that death is lurking. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week. And who in that crowd of disciples that was gathered there praising and rejoicing could have imagined what was about to come? Betrayal, arrest, trial, mockery, torture, crucifixion, death, burial. Who could have imagined? Jesus knows what is to come. Riding on the donkey as he draws near to the city, he breaks down and begins to cry. And he weeps. But he doesn't weep for himself and what he has to suffer. He weeps for the city. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Palm Sunday seems like a rather strange way to mark the beginning of Holy Week, doesn't it? Shouldn't we be more somber and less exuberant, more mournful in our worship? Isn't all the joy simply a misguided distraction from the cool reality of death that awaits? To the contrary, no. (laughs) Joy is exactly the right emotional response as we enter into Holy Week. Because again, the line between joy and death is a fragile one. Even though Jesus weeps when he enters the city, it is not sorrow that leads him there. It is joy. It is our sinful rebellion against God that nails Jesus to the cross, but it is joy that holds him on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was for the joy that he endured the cross. And what was that joy? It was the joy of having us by his side. It was the joy of loving fellowship. It was the joy of bringing more children into the household of the Father. It was the joy of being united with that which he loves. That is why... He endured the cross and despised the shame. It's the same for Jesus as it was the teacher. Death is a backdrop of life. Death is the canvas upon which our lives are painted. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
But there's an important difference between Jesus and the teacher in their perspectives on death. For Jesus, it's not our own death that is the canvas upon which we paint our lives. It is the life of Jesus. For the teacher, death is what returns us to the dust of the earth forever. But for Jesus, death is not the final note. It is a passageway which will mark a new beginning. For the teacher, death is an ugly affair that takes and steals and robs all that is beautiful and precious. But for Jesus, even in our dying, we become more fully alive. Even in death, we begin to taste a greater glory and beauty that will be ours in the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen. Father, we give you praise and thanks. We rejoice even in the face of death, the death of your own son. Fill our hearts with hope, hope in the resurrection, hope in what Jesus has done to unite us to yourself. And fill our hearts with joy. Lord, I pray for the ability for us, of those of us in Jesus Christ, to be able to taste and experience the joy of simple life that you've given us. Help us to be thankful for all the little things and to find joy even in the light. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.